0: Good morning, Grace Bible Church. We are going to be this morning in Luke 14. Luke 14, it's going to be the, uh, starting in verse 25, verse 25. I'll just take a moment um, to express thanks uh, to God for the privilege of being a part of this church here uh, in the Bay Area, and also um, gratitude for uh, Steve and Ken for your leadership and friendship for the opportunity to stand behind this desk um, and open up God's word, I don't take it lightly. So I've entitled the message, uh, The Terms and Conditions of Discipleship. The Terms and Conditions of Discipleship. So I'm going to read starting in verse 25, and then we can get started. Let me uh, pray real quick first. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the great gift of your Son and the cost that it was to you so that our, so that our salvation could be a free gift, Lord Open our eyes so that we can see wonderful things in your word, that we can understand it, that we can do it, and even pass it on to others as well. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Starting in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks, asks for terms of peace. Therefore, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I have a smartphone, like many of you in this room, and when I was activating it for the first time, I had to uh, read something, or they told me to read something, called The Terms and Conditions. And I can promise many of you that I did not. Um, And I think if we're honest, many of you did not as well. Um, Something like that really is of little consequence, ultimately, I think. Unfortunately, many have taken that same approach to the Christian life. And that is something that we cannot do. We cannot do that. We must be clear on the terms and the conditions of following Jesus if our discipleship is to be legitimate and fruitful. And so here in our text, Jesus defines discipleship and the terms of discipleship. And he defines it negatively. And when I say he defines it negatively, I don't mean that he speaks poorly about it or that he speaks badly about it. What I mean is he defines it by what it is not. Or rather, who it is that cannot be a disciple. You'll see Three times in the passage here, the end of verse 26, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, cannot be my disciple. The end of the passage in verse 33, cannot be my disciple. So that is what we're going to be considering this morning. And uh, I think you'll also note uh, throughout the passage the all-inclusive language that he uses as well. Anyone, whoever, any one of you. So this is a message really that he is preaching at this time to everyone. Everyone who is following him and then everyone afterward as well. This is something that is not just for cleaned up, religious, uh, polished people, but he is inviting all sinners to come to him. And so there's two things I want us to note here. Two things I want us to note before we continue uh, about what Jesus is not saying. What Jesus is not saying. The first one is that there is not two levels of spirituality for Christian believers. He's not talking about a, a, an advanced, elevated level where before you were just a believer and then now you can be a disciple. In, in past decades, this, this was uh, the idea of a spiritual Christian versus a carnal Christian. We don't really use that language much today, but many of you are familiar with that from uh, your own Christian lives in the past. So uh, that is not what Jesus is advocating for here. Um, He is speaking to all believers uh, who would ever want to come after him. The second thing that we have to note here is that Jesus is not telling people how to be saved. He is not telling people how to be saved. He's not saying, do these three things and then you will be saved, you will have your sins forgiven. That's not what he's saying here. Salvation is a free gift of God through grace and faith. But what he's talking about in this passage is the degree of commitment that a follower of Jesus must have. This is the level of devotion that someone must have if they're going to call themselves a disciple. So those two things are really important for us to keep in mind so that we don't misunderstand what he's saying here. And in this passage, we'll see that disciples of Christ, of Jesus Christ, must prioritize him above all things. They must prioritize him above all things. Above their relationships, above even their own lives, and above all of their possessions as well. And so just to give a bit of a recap up to this point, Jesus has been traveling throughout all of Israel and preaching and teaching about repentance and the kingdom of God, the message of the gospel. And so in Luke 9, you don't have to turn there, I'll just turn back to it. Verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was the place where he would ultimately be arrested and killed. And so... All the way from this passage in Luke 9, verse 51, he's been traveling and making his way to Jerusalem. He's ascending to Jerusalem where he would ultimately be crucified. And along the way, he has accumulated large groups of people. Large groups of people. It says here, great crowds, the masses. And they've been following him uh, for a couple of reasons that that we'll go over. But this is the setting. He is making his way to Jerusalem... ...to ultimately be crucified, and there are great numbers of people who are following him around. And so the first thing we need to see, even before Jesus opens his mouth in verse 25, it says here, "...now great crowds accompanied him." Great crowds accompanied him. And that's really relevant for us in our day and age and in our culture, where churches have marketing committees and seasonal campaigns, and they're willing to do anything and everything just to get people through the door by any means necessary... And so we've turned um, the Lord's Day for worship um, into a 20-minute TED Talk in a concert, all in the name of, of getting people in and getting people in those seats, and we've bought into the myth of just doing whatever it takes to get people into church, and then that will, that will be, that's exactly what God wants. Um, and all in the name of having a broader influence for the kingdom of God. So, so there are many churches who have the right motive. They want, to, they want to do the work of the kingdom. They want to see people get saved. Uh, but the means that they're doing it are carnal and fleshly. And so when our quotas are met and when we get those numbers, we think, ah, yes, this is a revival. This is a great work of God. This is a, this is a, a stamp of success for what we're doing. God is validating what we're doing. And I think that when you read through the Gospels, it becomes very clear that Jesus, though he generated massive crowds, he had many superficial followers and few true disciples. Few true disciples. There were many that were excited about Jesus but not committed to him. And so the reason behind this great crowd, this great following, uh, even in the previous chapters, Luke 11, Jesus casts out a mute demon Luke 13 heals a woman with a disabling spirit. Luke 14 heals a man with dropsy. There are multiple occasions when Jesus feeds people by the thousands. I'd be following Jesus around too. And I think many of you would as well. So, why were they following him? Because they were benefiting off of it. They were benefiting off of it. They were looking at the signs, not the things to which the signs pointed in Christ. And he knew this too. He knew this too. John chapter 2, 23. Now, this was right before the passage that Dave actually read this morning. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He was no fool. He, he, was not, he clearly perceived the superficial and temporary nature of their discipleship. He sees right through phony disciples and fair-weather followers. So that's something we need to get straight, you know, right on the front end of this. That ministry success is not determined by counting heads. Ministry success is not determined by counting heads. You only need to look at stadiums packed out with people just to hear lies to know that. There are many people who call themselves Christians, but they have no idea actually what a Christian even is or what it means to be one. And then when you ask someone, why do you think you're a Christian? Oftentimes the answers are, they all boil down to this. I go to church, I was baptized, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, I made a profession of faith at at a campus ministry back when all my friends were doing it. So the reasons that they think that they're Christians are cultural, traditional, and just social respectability. And our Lord here is going to remind us of what the true nature and the true shape of Christian discipleship is. He turned and said to them, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now someone looks at this statement and thinks, ah, yes, surely here is, where, here is proof that the Bible contradicts itself. Because... Doesn't it say in the 10 commandments that we are to honor our father and mother? Surely here Jesus is at odds with Moses on this. Or what about later in in the epistles? The apostle Paul Ephesians 5:25 husbands are to love their wives. And also on multiple occasions Jesus even taught that you're not just to love the people that are lovable or that your loved ones, but even your own your own enemies. How could he possibly be saying you have to hate all of these people in order to follow him? What's he saying? Here's what he's not saying. He's not telling his disciples to hate or loathe or abhor their relatives in the conventional sense of the word hate that we commonly understand. What he's using is a common Hebrew expression that is used to describe preference. It's used to describe preference. And this isn't the first or only time we've seen this, too, back in the book of Genesis Jacob had how many wives? He had two of them. He shouldn't have done that, but he had two of them. And in Genesis 29, verse 30, 31, we see this expression here. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And served Laban for another seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, and Rachel was barren. So the verse, verse 30 helps us to understand that expression in verse 31. It's a, it's a common Hebrew expression that they would have been well familiar with. It's not that Jacob loathed Leah and loved Rachel. It's that he had a preference. He loved Rachel more. So it's a hyperbolic expression. It's a hyperbole. It's used to describe your love for someone or something being greater than your love for something or someone else. And Jesus capitalizes on this figure of speech or this hyperbole to make a point. And he, this isn't the only time he does that also. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's t- teaching his disciples on how to deal with sin in their lives. And he says, if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. And if your right eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. He's not advocating for sanctification by amputation or mutilation. He's, he's, he's using a hyperbole to make the point that sin is so wicked so persistent and so nefarious in your life that you have to do whatever it takes to don't just avoid it but put it to death put it to death even violently that's what he's doing and that's the kind of expression that he's using here to communicate and someone might object to this and say ah see you're not interpreting the bible literally because it literally says you must hate these people And what that kind of objection does is is it ignores the fact that a literal literal interpretation of the Bible takes into account figures, figures of speech because that is a normal feature of language. That's just a normal part of language. That's universal and that is timeless. All cultures, even not just throughout the world today, but throughout the ages, use figures of speech. Now that doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is a figure of speech. There are people who interpret it that way. Um, But we need to take that into account and understand that even his audience would have understood correctly what he was saying. He's telling them that if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, your love for me must be so great that it must far exceed and far surpass your love for anyone else, anyone else. That your love for them has to look like hatred in comparison with your love for me. He must have the place of ultimate priority in all your relationships. You hear people speak all the time about God, family, and country. And I was having this discussion with a family member a couple of months ago over the phone who insisted to me that those three things should be equal in a person's life and then they'll have a good life. Not according to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not true. He is to have the primacy, the priority, and the preeminence over all relationships in your life. And if you are to follow him, you must be willing to forsake everyone else if it means following him. If that's what it costs, that is what you must do. Jesus taught about this elsewhere also. Turn to Matthew 10. Turn to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verse 34. I'll begin reading at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Some of you may be here because of a spouse, or because of your parents, or because of a friend, or because of your children. And what you need to do is to ask yourself in the privacy of your own heart before the Lord am I only here for this person, or am I here for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I love the person sitting in the green chair next to me more than the Lord Jesus Christ? That is something that he calls all supposed followers to ask themselves and answer. Those are the terms of discipleship. Jesus calls you to take inventory of everyone you love because commitment to, your, because commitment to Christ will disrupt your life. It will disrupt your life and your relationships. And many of you already know that much better than I do because you bear the scars of years of the conflict that Jesus has brought into your homes because you have known the awkwardness that he's brought into your friendships and into your workplaces. He has to be more important than family and friends and even your own life. I love that line in Martin Luther's uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. That's this passage. That's what he's talking about. If you can't prioritize Christ above all other relationships, then you can't be his disciple. The end of verse 26, yes, and even his own life he cannot be my, my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He expands on the demands of following him and he moves from the relational cost to the individual cost of following him. Your commitment to the Lord Jesus must surpass even your own self-interests, even your own self-interests. It begins with an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord, but doesn't end there. It requires a comprehensive and ongoing surrender to his Lordship in your life. Whether you're in public or private, whether you're in church or out in the world, whether times are good or times are bad, he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. It's a very easy thing to add Jesus to your life. It's an easy thing to say you're a Christian and have no resolve to live it out. It's an easy thing to sort of tip your hat to Jesus while he's really nothing more than a footnote in your life. It's an entirely different thing to submit everything, everything, every area of your life to his lordship. All our plans and our priorities must take the back seat, and we must be in the business of continuously putting love of self to death love of self the motto of our lives have to echo the words of john the baptist who said he must increase and i must decrease i must decrease self must decrease and ego must decrease you cannot love yourself and love the lord jesus christ we're through and through lovers of ourselves human beings we love ourselves and we especially need to fight against this tendency where we're living today. Because even though the love of self is universal, its I can't think of another place on planet Earth where it is so heavily advertised and so militantly advocated for than the culture that we live in. Your life is no longer your own. If you belong to Christ, your life is no longer your own. It's true for his disciples wherever they are in the world. And it, however new you are to the Christian faith, if you're a new believer or if you're a seasoned saint, he tells them that they have to put themselves to death. Not, not commit suicide, but they have to put their own self-interest, they have to take a back seat, and they have to follow God's will for their life. And when he tells them that they have to take up their own cross and follow him, they have to be willing to follow Christ even if it costs them their life. Even if it costs them their life. Some of you know that I work on an ambulance, and occasionally we'll get calls up to SFO, and we'll have to get uh, escorted through the, one of the escort gates and go into the tarmac. And the number one rule of being on the tarmac is you follow the escort vehicle. You have to follow the escort vehicle wherever it goes, and you have to follow it closely. You can't just create your own path to the patient. You don't want to see a, a four-wheel vehicle against an airplane. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. You have to follow that escort vehicle closely and everywhere it goes, and that is how we have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, too. Not lagging behind him, not going and finding our own path. Oh, I just feel like doing this, or, or this is the way that I'm going to worship God. We follow a crucified Savior, and if we're to follow him, we have to follow him to the cross, if that is what God calls upon us to do. And we typically use this phrase, bearing our cross, to refer to trials. When we go through hard times, we say, this is the cross that I'm bearing. And I don't want to be misunderstood. Trials are a fixed dimension of the Christian life. There's no way around it. Even if you're not a Christian, you will go through trials. It's a It's universal. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the the, possibilityhood, the possibility and even the likelihood of death. He's talking about martyrdom. And the cross was not something that the, the early disciples had uh, tattooed or jewelryed or, or, um, they, or they didn't go to Hobby Lobby and get one of those little wooden crosses and it says, live, laugh, love on it. They, they, that's not what they would have understood this to be. They knew that it was an instrument of, it was a tool to torture people and to kill them. It was the means by which a, a criminal would be painfully and shamefully executed for a capital offense. He would have to take the crossbeams and carry it to the place himself. And the, the path, the road, was lined with people uh, cursing at them and spitting on them and all sorts of things. So it wasn't just the painful death, but it was the shame of being paraded around in front of everyone. And what Jesus is saying here is unless you are willing to suffer a painful death and public shame for my sake, you cannot be my disciple you have to be all in on this thing and so he uses two illustrations to tell them you need to think about what you're doing if you haven't started this journey yet you need to think about it if you have if you have followed him and if you are following him this day you need to be reminded of this in verse 28 he gives an illustration of building a tower for which of you desiring to build a tower Does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The subject that he's addressing with this large crowd is so crucial, so vitally important, he takes the time to give two illustrations in order to explain it to them. And he shows himself really to be a master teacher. So he paints this picture first of this man who wants to build a tower. And anyone who's lived here in the peninsula for any length of time is at least somewhat familiar, at least visually, with construction sites. I mean, uh, shopping complexes and, and, and so-called affordable housing just popping up out of nowhere, all over the place. But it doesn't happen on a whim. It doesn't happen in a week. Uh, there's much that goes into these things. Um even though they seem to just spring up. You need permits from the city. Uh, You need to contract a construction company that has an appropriately sized workforce. You need reliable equipment. You need supplies and materials that are going to outlast and withstand environmental forces. You need to hire architects and draw blueprints and plans and then execute them in a timely fashion to make your deadlines. There's factors and costs that have to be assessed before the building process can actually even take place. So nobody would be foolish enough to rush into building a tower before they've taken the time to consider whether or not they have the resources to actually finish the job. Why? Because, Jesus says, it'd be embarrassing if you started it and then halfway through bailed out because you couldn't finish it. Now, this would have resonated strongly with his audience because they lived in a culture where honor and shame permeate the, so, the social, social life. It permeates the social life. And that's true still in many places in the world today. There's an honor and a shame aspect of their culture. We don't understand this because Americans aren't ashamed of anything. You only have to listen to the radio and watch TV and or be on social media to know that we're not ashamed of anything. We have no reservations about airing out all our dirty laundry and other people's dirty laundry for other people to see on the internet or in public. And then we praise ourselves for how authentic we are. But Jesus' listeners would have heard this illustration and thought, that man better think twice before starting that project. Because if he goes through with this and then halfway through realizes he can't finish it, he's going to bring shame on himself and shame on his family too. So he's saying you wouldn't rush into building a tower without counting the cost. Why would you rush into following me without counting the cost? The Christian life is not something to be entered into on a whim or on the basis of a purely emotional experience. A purely emotional experience. Many of us, when we came to faith in Christ, there were tons of emotions, new emotions that the Lord was bringing out in us because we understood the truth. That's the key. It's the mind and the heart. And then the will makes a decision by God's enabling But if it's a purely emotional experience, that is not grounds for following Christ. Because it is a costly, difficult, and long-term endeavor. It is costly, it is difficult, and it requires perseverance. It requires perseverance. All the seeker-sensitive church growth committees are going, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't talk about that with them. You're going to empty the church and then how are we going to pay for, all, for, all, for this huge property and for all, all this branding and all this marketing and all the, the smoke machines and the laser lights. You're going to empty the church, Jesus, if, you're, if you keep talking like this. And I bet there were many in the crowd that, whose initial excitement wore off when they realized what following Christ would mean for their lives. I'm sure that there were. There were. And I'm sure that you all can think of people in your own lives who at one time seemed to be on fire for the Lord, excited to come to church, excited to come to Bible study, to be reading their Bibles and praying and telling all their friends. And then as time went on, they stopped coming to church, stopped reading their Bibles, stopped publicly identifying as a Christian. And then you talk to them, oh, Oh, don't worry, I, I still believe in God. I still believe in God. Or maybe they've rejected Christ altogether. I'm sure that many of you, names are just popping up in your minds. One of the most tragic things is a promising beginning that ultimately proves to be unfruitful. Because their lives are the ruins of towers that they started to build and never finished. Did they lose their salvation? If they made a profession of faith in Christ, did they... Are they no longer saved when they once were? Did they lose their salvation in Christ? Can Christ not keep them for the day of redemption? No, no. They didn't lose their salvation. They made a profession of faith in Christ that was grounded in pure emotional excitement and not genuine conviction and commitment. Turn to Matthew 13. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Verse 18 of Matthew 13. Jesus, in the parable of the sower here, uh, he refers to these um, supposed believers who initially appeared to be Christians on the outside but showed themselves not to be. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. These are unfinished towers. Unfinished towers. Verse 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. Another so, I'm sure at this teaching there were many that were not thrilled with Jesus' word. But it did not deter him from telling them the truth. And it should not deter us from telling people the truth either. We need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is not impressed with numbers. He is not impressed with numbers. He doesn't need to seduce people into coming to him with promises of, of self fulfillment and living your best life now. He said that not not us, he will build his church. He will build his church, and it will be full of people who have given serious thought to the difficulty, to the cost, and the perseverance necessary to follow him. That is who will constitute Christ's church. Jesus is used to saying hard things to his audience. He's not a person who who catered to people or accommodated to what people wanted to hear. Turn again with me to John 6. John 6. This is really important for us to just get that that what Jesus' approach is to ministry, what his approach is to making disciples. And we're going to see here that many walked out on Jesus and no longer followed him. John 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, many of them, turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? The door is right there if you want to follow everyone else out because... I'm not going to lower the terms of the standards of my teaching and my discipleship. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus does not take the approach of making it as easy as possible for them so that he can get as many followers as possible. So, in this passage in John 6, he's actually thinning the crowd out. He's not looking for emotionally hyped up people just to make a hasty decision because they don't want to go to hell. He wants committed followers who have soberly and wholeheartedly agreed with the apostle Peter and said, Lord, we know the cost. We're not going anywhere. Verse 31 he moves to this second illustration of a king. Or what king, or yeah, we're back in Luke 14, back in Luke 14, verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. There are few things more costly in this life Than warfare. Few things more costly. There's the economic costs and the cost of human lives as well. And so he considers this king who's about to to do battle with this second king. And the second king is approaching with twice as many soldiers as the first one. He's not coming to, to fight fairly, he's coming to win. He's coming to win. And so this first king needs to ask himself or whether or not he should even engage whether or not it's worth it, whether or not he can finish what he started, whether or not he can even win this war. Because if he continues down this path, he runs the risk, even the likelihood, of an overwhelming defeat. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not giving this illustration to tell his disciples, look, if you're going to follow me, you're going to lose this thing. He said, you better not. You better turn back. That's not, what he's, that's not what he's saying to them. He's telling them that there are some things... <laughs> that are so consequential that the, the, the implications are so great that you need to think seriously about whether or not you're going to do this. That is the point that he is making to his disciples. He's warning them against making a hasty decision, a decision that is not, that has not been thought through. He's emphasizing the need to make a fully informed decision where all the cards have been set out on the table so there are no surprises. There are no surprises. Again, following Christ is costly. It is difficult and it requires perseverance because the Christian life is warfare. The Christian life is warfare. There are struggles now that in Christ you know that you didn't know before you came to Christ. For many of you, the, the, the struggle didn't begin until you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was easy to go along with the world. It was easy to go along with the, with the sinful uh, flesh and the passions of the flesh that are just natural to us. It was easy to do those things. It's easy to do. Why do you think it's easy to do what's wrong and it's hard to sometimes to do what is right? Because it's natural in us. So for many of us, when we came to Christ, the, the fight only began. And he's even telling them that here. We're opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you're in Christ, those three forces are going to be working against you to frustrate your walk with the Lord and to frustrate your witness to the world. The Christian life is not for people who want a cushy and comfortable life. It's not for Twinkies. Jesus says if you are to follow him, uh, loving, trusting, and obeying him will be a daily struggle and a daily battle. Ephesians 6, verse 12, I'll just read it for you. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what rulers and authorities in this context means. Paul uses that language elsewhere to describe uh, angelic beings. And so it's not as if we are you know, walking around trying to find demons behind every bush, or that we have a, a, a demon assigned to us or something like that. We don't, we don't know any of those things. Demons are, are spiritual beings and we know that they exist. And we know that they are doing everything that is possible. They know that our salvation is secured. Jesus Christ paid with his own blood to secure our redemption and that cannot be undone by nothing and nobody. But they will do everything they can to frustrate our Christian lives. And so Uh, We shouldn't be trying to fight them in the sense of going around rebuking demons, but just be aware that there are forces that are at work against us. That's what he's saying here. And we need to know that. The people to whom we witness need to know that as well. I mentioned earlier that I have an iPhone, and that when I got it, I had to sign off on the terms and conditions that I probably did not read. And you know what? Apple doesn't care. They don't care. As, as, as long as you sign on the dotted line and that, that's it. They have your money. And that's what all they're happy about. But that is not Jesus' approach to building his church and to building his kingdom. I... I uh, was on a call once with my partner. We were transporting someone home from the hospital. And a family member of this patient came out and started talking to us about the Lord. I was like, oh, great. This is, this is going to be a great experience. You know, I'm, I've been talking to my partner about the Lord and about Christ. And now there's going to be this third party that is, you know, maybe you can get a different take or, or something. And uh, this, this gentleman, nice gentleman, I'm, I'm positive that we'll all see him in heaven. And then you'll think, ah, yes, you're the guy from that illustration in that sermon. Um, he essentially told my partner about the, the gospel and led him through a prayer and at the end said, congratulations, uh, you're saved. Congratulations, you're saved. You're, you're going to heaven. And so I was like, okay. I, I figured it would, be, it would be too confusing and, and not helpful to just deconstruct it right there. But I just asked my partner after, like, well, what, did, what did you think about that, uh, that interaction? He said, it was nice. It was nice. Are do you? Are you? A, are you a Christian? He said, "No, no." I was just being being courteous to this to this gentleman, just being polite to him. We can't be naive, and that's not what the Lord wants us to do, um, because my partner had no idea what the cost of following Christ would be from that interaction. And so you can't make a decision to follow Christ without knowing that, without knowing that. Now, some might object and say, Kinoa, people are dying and going to hell, and they need to come to Christ, and they need to do it now. They, they, you don't know if they're going to walk out and, and get hit by a bus or, or something like that. Or they, they need to, We need to get people into the kingdom as fast as possible because we don't know when their last day is going to be. And to that I say, you're right. We don't know when they're going to die. And there is an urgency to the gospel. We have to go, and and Jesus says, to compel people to enter the kingdom of God. There has to be an urgency about it. Because that objection, in a certain sense, is right. We don't know when people are going to die. What are we waiting for? Waiting to tell people about this message. We have been entrusted with the greatest message that the world has ever known, has ever heard. And there is, there is an urgency about the gospel and the message of Christ. And that's, what, what Jesus is saying here is not that we should tell people to sit around their whole lives making pros and cons lists and just think about it until who knows when they're going to die. That's not what he's saying. The gospel has to be reached. It has to be preached to people, and they have to be reached with the gospel urgently but not hastily. They need to commit their lives to Christ urgently but not hastily. They can't do it without knowing what the terms and conditions are. They need to be fully informed, they need to count the cost, we need to count the cost and then commit our lives to Christ urgently. So he gives those two illustrations in order to in order to impress upon them to emphasize the the need to know what what is, this, what is this about? What is this going to mean for my life? And what is it going to cost me to follow Christ? And then make a decision. And he moves from the illustration after giving the, the relational and individual costs to the illustration. And he moves to the last cost. And I suspect, I suspect that he saved this for last because for most people, this would be the most difficult to overcome. Verse 33, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The material cost, the material cost of following Jesus Christ. The ESV, if you're reading from the ESV, it reads, all that he has. The New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, and the Legacy Standard, they actually render this phrase, um, renouncing all his possessions, possessions and i think that that's actually an appropriate rendering of 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 giving the sense of what jesus is getting at here if your life is about material possessions and wealth you cannot be a disciple of jesus christ if that is what your life is about wealth and material possessions a heart that is weighed down by the love of money is incapable of loving christ and therefore incapable of following him incapable of following him and again, us in our culture, in our society, we need to fight against the, the, the air that we breathe and the water that we're swimming in of American consumerism and discontent, discontent. We need to fight against it because it assaults us on every side and it tells us that we can't be happy, we can't be satisfied, we can't be fulfilled unless we have the next thing. The next thing that they're showing us in, 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 on YouTube ads and on billboards and as you're walking past storefronts in the, in the streets, you can't be happy. Your life can't be fulfilled unless you have stuff. Stuff. I don't want anyone to, to misunderstand either. This is not discipleship by poverty. Okay? This is not discipleship by, by, by material poverty. It's not the, the problem is not having Things, it's when things have you, it's when things have your heart. Many of the disciples did sell all their things in the New Testament. They did sell all the things and then give it away, give it to the poor, share it amongst one another. And I think that we could learn from that as well. Not that we should not that I'm telling you all to go sell your houses and your cars and all your stuff and just and go bag on the street. But Jesus is saying that my disciples, they have to have a loose grip on the things of this world. 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For money is a root of all kinds of evil. No, no. No. The love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this, he uses the word, this craving, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith And pierced themselves with many pangs. And let me take it a bit further too. This is not just a problem for the rich. This is not just a problem for the rich. You can be poor, or you can have less than others, and be envious, be covetous, be ungrateful, unthankful for the things that you have, and covet the things that you see that other people have. Whether it's people that you know or people on the internet or people you see on TV, a covetous heart is a heart that is enslaved to possessions. You can be poor and have the love of money. You can be poor and be ruled by uh, the, the, the craving for possessions and the craving for things. Jesus said in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. If your heart is ruled by the love of stuff, you are ruled by money. And countless people have proven their faith to be illegitimate because they could not imagine parting ways with the things that they have. They couldn't, they couldn't fathom it, parting ways with their stuff. There's stuff that belongs to God anyways there's stuff that they can't take with them after they've breathed their last breath. Things that will be destroyed in the final judgment anyways. We see this in the most living color with the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'm just going to begin reading Matthew 19. We see this, uh, this rich young ruler as he approaches the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 16 he says, And behold, a man came up to him and saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That tells you something right there. He's thinking of of salvation by works. What must I do? What must I do? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, follow the law, follow God's law. And he said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I've done all this perfectly. All of these I've kept. All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Great, I'm, I'm going to heaven then. So, so, so what else is there? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Sorrowful. It broke his heart, the, the, the possibility of leaving his things. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why did Jesus tell him to sell all his stuff? Kinoah, didn't you just say that I don't have to sell all my stuff in order to follow Christ? Jesus had listed off certain commandments that relate to other people. He did not list all the commandments that relate to God. Jesus did not tell him, you you must have no gods. You shall have no gods before me. That is why he told him to sell his stuff, because his stuff was his God. His possessions were the things that he worshipped. If you want to follow Christ, You have to be willing to kiss your possessions goodbye and have a loose grip on the things of this world. And so I tell each of you listening here today that unless you prioritize Christ above your relationships, above your own life, and above all your possessions, and you've thought long about what it will mean for your life to do so, you can't follow him. You cannot be a disciple. You can't have one foot in and one foot out of the kingdom of God because he's a savior that plays for keeps. You must follow him at the cost of everything. Some of you here, if you're not a believer in Christ, you may be thinking, wow, that sounds miserable, because I love all those things. I love, I love my family, I love all my friends, I love myself, that's my favorite thing, As I love myself, and doing the things that make me happy. And I love my stuff. But when you're in Christ and when you have when you've seen the joy and and realized the love that God has for you and the cost that he paid the great cost to himself that it took to secure your redemption. And you see the love of God and you and you 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 experience for the first time that liberation from from the the heavy slavery to sin, the ruthless slavery to sin that we're fooled into thinking is is our own our own autonomy for our own fulfillment, when you're liberated from that and your eyes are open to the magnitude of the love of Jesus Christ, the cost of following him becomes a privilege and the sacrifice becomes joy. And I know that many of you in this room have already known years of that joy. Joy that goes beyond just your circumstances. Joy that goes beyond just uh, in the moment happiness. That when, when, when you're when your relatives die, when, you're, when you lose the house, when you lose the job, when your cars break down, you have that peace of God because you have peace with God. And even though your family members uh, are, are, are in conflict with you and mock you and deride you and, and when you're left out of things because people don't want someone there who follows Christ, you still experience that joy. The freest that you will ever be Is a slave of Christ. And the happiest you will be ever is to mourn over your sins. It may cost you your family, your friends, your life, and your stuff to follow him, but it will, remember, it will cost you everything to not follow him. It will cost you your soul and eternity to not follow Jesus Christ. A couple of um, of ways that I think will be helpful for us to to implement following him, first follow him consistently. Follow him consistently. Again, in every area of your life, every area, allow no part of your day in your life to be untouched by your walk with the Lord. Consistently, don't just follow him consistently, but publicly. Follow him publicly. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. He wasn't ashamed. Are we? Are we ashamed to live it out publicly? There is no such thing as a private faith in Jesus Christ. When you hear politicians and get asked, you know, what ask questions about, about their supposed faith or their favorite Bible verse, oh, that, that's that's private. That's private. That is not a person who's in the kingdom of God. That is not a person who's on his way to heaven. That is a person who is ashamed of Jesus Christ. They're ashamed. We're meant to be lights in this dark world. Lights are meant to be seen. Not just publicly, but individually and communally. Individually and communally. We each have a walk with the Lord as individuals, but it's not meant to be at the expense of your walk with the Lord with the church. This is not just a JC and me faith. This is not just me and my, my own walk and the church can do whatever it wants, um, and this is just me between me and God. You cannot say you respect me and disrespect my wife. You cannot say you love Christ and hate His bride. Can't do it. Your commitment to gr- to Christ is to a certain degree reflected by your commitment to the church. So ask yourself, how committed am I am, am I to Christ's body, the institution that He founded? that he has brought through centuries and centuries, and that as, as all other institutions fade into the background and nations and, and all sorts of organizations, what will still be standing is the church. So commit, me, commit yourself to, to, the, to a local church. If, if you're visiting, it doesn't have to be this church, but it should be a church that teaches the word and exercises the, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but commit yourself to a church a faithful church. Next, follow him wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly follow Christ. Follow him and don't turn back. Some of you may know the story of, I just heard this recently for the first time, of uh, Cortez when he came uh, and, uh, and landed here uh, in the Americas and he unloaded all his soldiers and all his horses and, and everyone was getting ready to, to go on this mission to, to conquer the Aztec Empire. And he said, burn the ships. He, told, he said, to just burn them. Just, just have them destroyed. Because we're not going back. We're not going back to where we were. If you're in this thing, you're either in it or you're not. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of whole... I'm glad, that I, I'm glad that I heard that recently, because that's a perfect picture of what our commitment to Christ should be. Follow him with all your heart and all your strength. It will be difficult, but it can be done with God's help. Follow him sacrificially sacrificially follow him. Think of the cost that it was to secure our spot in heaven. And any cost that, any sacrifice that we make just turns, turns into nothing. So follow him sacrificially. Embrace the cost and just trust him in the process. Give your time sacrificially and your money sacrificially to follow him. Here's a good gauge of your walk with the Lord, of your your discipleship to Christ. Follow the trail of your time and your money, and that will tell you a lot about your walk with Christ and how closely you're following him. What you do with those things. God has has entrusted it's not our money, it's not our time. These are these are all God's. He's given it to us to give him a return so we could show him what we did with it on the last day. Do it joyfully. Do it joyfully. The paradox about the Christian life is that the, the, as our capacity for suffering increases, so does our capacity for joy. And as our delight in God, uh, and, uh, so does our capacity for joy and delight in God as our affections for the things of this world fade and our adoration for Him grows and grows. And lastly, follow Him stubbornly. Follow Him stubbornly. You will fall. And there will be times in your Christian life you will fail. And you need to take stock of that now. And I'm not saying to give license to it that you're just, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just going to mess up, so why even try? That's not the attitude that, that the Lord calls us to have. But just realize that you will not have a perfect walk with the Lord and just stubbornly persist in following him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to persist in following him and just overcome whatever obstacles uh, may be, whether it's people out in the world... Or it's just my own, my own failure, my own weakness. And so as you strive to do those things, as you strive to follow Christ, um, the Lord will, will, will enable you. He will enable you to do so as you rely on his strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great cost that it was to yourself to um, forgive our sins and to, uh, to set out a path for us that we could take to follow Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that it is, it is a difficult path. And, it's, and even in this room, Lord, we have not suffered yet to the point of having to shed our own blood, but you've called us to be willing to do that. And so, Lord, I pray that for each and every person in this room, if they have not trusted in Christ for salvation and then repented of their sins and committed themselves to following him, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes or work in their hearts um, to move them to that point, Lord. I pray that there wouldn't be anyone who would uh, just make an emotional decision for Christ, but that they would know that they'd be fully informed. And Lord, we are a weak people, and so we ask you to help us, to enable us to follow Christ. We can't do do it on our own. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.